0: Tim Keller in his book on prayer invites his readers to imagine they are visiting a friend in New York City whose apartment is right by the train tracks. Now imagine you're sitting there in conversation when suddenly the train comes roaring by just a few feet from where you are sitting. Scared to death, you jump to your feet at the sound asking, what was that? Well, your friend Longtime resident of New York responds by, what was what? You're surprised by their response. And you answer, that sound. I thought something was coming right through the wall. Your friend then says, oh, that, that's just the train. You know, I guess I've gotten so used to it that I don't even notice it any longer. And with wide eyes wide open, you look at them and you say, I don't know how that's possible. How can you not hear a train? But it is possible. And oftentimes, it's the same way with prayer. Church, if we're not careful, we can become overly familiar with God and take talking with God for granted. And I wonder if that's what causes Jesus to say what he does in Matthew chapter 5, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. Listen to our text this morning, starting with verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Did you notice how the Pharisees in verse 5 love to pray? But their love of prayer is not because they love God, but they love the attention of being seen by others, making God irrelevant as they pray. Jesus is saying that as disciples, we are to avoid using prayer to show off, as the Pharisees do. Disciples are also to avoid babbling in prayer the way the pagans do. This babbling, it's a form of prayer that's filled with words, but empty of heart. You see, the pagans believed that the more they said, the better the chance that they would be heard. And it makes you wonder if what the pagan god is like, who only approaches the worshiper, who makes the biggest fuss. There's something else about the text. Did you notice a phrase that was repeated three times in the text? Verse 5, where it says, and when you pray. Verse 6, where it says, but when you pray. And verse 7, which begins, and when you pray. There's a principle of Bible interpretation called the principle of repeated mention. And it means this. When an idea is repeated, and in this case three times, it is being emphasized. Well, what's Jesus emphasizing? Jesus is assuming that his disciples are righteous people, which means that disciples of Jesus are a praying people. You see, there are many passages that command us to pray, but this is not one of them. In this passage, Jesus assumes that disciples pray. H.B. Charles, the preacher, once said, "'Prayer is to the soul what oxygen is to the body. Show me a disciple who does not pray, I'll show you a person who is spiritually dead. Righteous people pray." End quote. Jesus is gonna teach his righteous disciples how to pray, and this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is revolutionary. And here's the best way I can think of to describe this prayer the first half of the prayer is how you pray if you love god the second half of the prayer is how you pray if you love others remember the greatest commandment love the lord your god what's the second one love your neighbor that's how this prayer is divided so how do you pray if you love god well look how the prayer opens our father in heaven The word father, it's not just a description of God, it is the relationship disciples of Jesus are to have with God. Now, this would have amazed the Pharisees in the crowd. You see, this word father, it is applied to God in the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament, where it is used, it is used to describe God's relationship with the nation of Israel as a whole. Never as the Father, never as God referred to as Father to an individual in the Old Testament. But now, remember, Jesus is telling a group of people to call God Father. He's saying individually to do that. And this is the same people who avoided saying God's name, Yahweh, to avoid being overly familiar with the Holy God of Israel. Let me illustrate it this way. Hyundai, the car company, had four commercials during the 2016 Super Bowl, but their best one was titled, First date. And it starred comedian Kevin Hart. Watch the commercial here. Oh, you look good. Thank you. Hey. See the guy taking my little girl out, huh? Yep. Huh. You know what, why don't you go ahead and take my new car? Thanks, Pops. Go ahead, baby. <laughs> Boom. Let's go. Favorite spot, favorite girl. I <laughs> you ready? Hey, I ready this? You messed it with the wrong daddy. I'm taking you home. Why? Car finder on the Hyundai Genesis. Back so soon. Here you go, sir. Because a dad's got to do what a dad's got to do. Honey, what'd you guys do tonight? I love that line. You're messing with the wrong daddy. That's great. Is Hart a model of the father Jesus is talking about? Now, it is obvious how much Hart loves his daughter, but he's being a bit creepy. He's kind of an overprotective helicopter parent, I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to when he talks about God as Father, because God, God's love is perfect. He is the perfect Father. Our heavenly Father is all-knowing and He is all-present. And what that means is this: God is involved in our lives as He gives us hope. God removes fear. He drives away loneliness. He possesses all the resources of heaven at, are at His disposal to help us be faithful. In devotion and service to Him. And so we pray because we love God and we relate to Him as the perfect Father. Next, we love God, so we pray our lives represent God accurately. Hallowed be your name. When I was a kid, before I went to school, uh, before I took, to the basketball court, or before I stepped on the running track, or before I went out on a date, my parents always said the same thing. Troy, remember, you're a Nelson. What was their point? My actions would elevate the reputation of the family name, Nelson, or my actions would diminish the family name, Nelson. That's Jesus' point, I think. God is already holy, and regardless of what we do, I cannot change God's personal holiness. So get the picture here. As Christians, God's name is put on us. We are children of God. And like the Nelson name, God's name, God's name is elevated by our actions as we represent him, or God's reputation is diminished by our inability to act in a godly way. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are saying, God, I love you, so help me honor you by my Christ-likeness and by my holiness. Martin Luther said, How is God's name hallowed? Amongst us, his answer was this, when both our doctrines and our living are truly Christian. I love the advice I read a preacher give to his congregation. He said this, before we start asking for what we want, we need to ask for what we should be. We love God. And so we pray to relate to him as a good father. We love God, so we pray to represent God accurately. Here's the third thing that we pray when we love God. We love God, so we pray to establish God's will on earth. Do you see the text? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. John Calvin taught that there were two ways God's, God's kingdom comes. Through the Spirit, who corrects our desires, and through the word of God, which shapes our thoughts. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are asking for God's reign, God's rule, to come to Washington, D.C., Wall Street, or Hollywood, sort of. You see, what we're actually asking when we're praying for God's kingdom to come is for God's rule to come into our lives. And out of our love for God, we request the ability to obey Him with all of our hearts. Now, as individual believers obey God's rule in our lives, it is then, it is then that Washington, D.C., Wall Street, Hollywood, Joplin begin to change. Do you get it? Love for God makes obedience to His will a priority in the lives of disciples. Without obedience to God, is there truly a love for God? And that is how our love for God is turned into prayer. Now, look where we've been so far. Love for God moves us to pray that we relate to Him as a good Father, that our lives represent God accurately, and finally, that we obey God's will. Then in verse 11, the prayer's focus shifts. our love for others. Notice how it opens in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. It's plural. Uh, Augustine reminds us that daily bread is a metaphor for the necessities rather than the luxuries. Now in a day and age where Walmart is within minutes of most homes, where most people rarely consider our dependence on God for daily food, but that doesn't make this part of the prayer any less challenging. The challenge for most of us is that of being content with what we have. For those who have an abundance, Jesus challenges them. Pray for your daily bread. In fact, there's an interesting Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, and it says this. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Doesn't this sound like Jesus' prayer? Now watch the warning of being content with daily bread. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 9, and it's talking about what's the danger of abundance. It says this, I may have too much and disown or forget God and say, Who's the Lord? Here's the challenge. We are blessed by God with abundance, having more than the necessities. Church, we are to to pray to be content with the necessities and then love others by blessing them out of our surplus. You see, when we love others, we think about what they need. When we love others, we think about what they need to exist and to flourish. So we pray for their food, for their transportation. We pray for their clothing, for their houses, for their jobs, and when necessary, for their daily bread to be supplied by God. And often that daily bread is supplied by God through the church. For the church to have daily bread to provide for people's necessities, disciples of Jesus need to learn how to be content. So love for others makes us pray for the needs of others to be met. Love for others does a second thing. It also makes us pray that we can forgive others. Look at the text. Jesus says in verse 12, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see, forgiveness is more a behavior than a feeling. To forgive, to forgive is to refuse to treat others badly because of the wrong that they did to us. Forgiveness is wanting the best for the person who wronged us, despite how we may feel toward them. But Jesus mentions another facet to forgiveness. He reminds us about how quick we are to forgive ourselves, but we procrastinate in forgiving others. You see, out of our love for others, we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. So what is implied in these words? It is that if we really receive God's forgiveness for our sins, we are so grateful to God for forgiving us that we mimic God by forgiving others. But catch the flip side of this. If as disciples of Jesus, we lack a forgiving spirit, then it is unlikely that we receive God's forgiveness for personal sins. Why? Because the joy of being forgiven by God inspires Inspires us to forgive others. There cannot be one without the other. Love for others makes us pray that we can forgive others. Finally, look at this. Love for others makes us pray that God would protect them from struggles that can break them apart. The text says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It will help us to understand the spirit of the prayer. Remember that the word temptation does not mean to, does not mean primarily to allure to sin. To tempt is to try, to test, to prove. Remember when God tested Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 by commanding him to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him? Abraham obeyed. And then after the test in verse 12, the angel says this, Now I know you fear God. Abraham passed the test. Many of the struggles we face are opportunities to prove, to test, whether we will be true to God or not. Every moment, we are required to make a choice, and our choices prove us. Here's a responsibility I have as a Christian. Will we do it or not? Here's an opportunity to serve. Will we accept it or not? Here's an impulse to do something good and right. Will we yield to it or will we repress it? We have money. Will we use it for God, or will we use it to be tight-fisted and hold it for ourselves? Sickness even tries us. Will we go through it with patience and take from our illness the gifts God desires to bring us? Or will we fuss and mope around, ignoring what God is trying to develop in us as we are forced to wait in Him in our sickness? Testing always implies that there is the possibility of failure. We may sin by choosing the wrong alternative, but testing also gives us the opportunity to overcome, to grow stronger. Listen to what James chapter one, verses two to three says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that here it is, the testing of your faith produces endurance. And a little further down, in James chapter 1, in verse 12, it says this, Blessed is the person who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will see receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Tests are an opportunity to bring the best out of us. Pray that testing brings the best out of us uh, all the time. Andrew Murray was a pastor and advocate for missions, and he wrote 240 books, yet for all his achievements he was best known as a man of prayer. And one of his best-known books was this, With Christ in the School of Prayer. There he provides a powerful word in the form of a prayer that serves as an appropriate closing for this sermon. Hear his prayer. Lord Jesus, Enroll my name among those who confess that they don't know how to pray as they should, and who especially ask you for a course of teaching and prayer. Lord, teach me to be patient in your school, so that you will have time to train me. I am ignorant of the wonderful privileges and power of prayer. Lead me to forget my thoughts of what I think I know, and make me kneel before you in true teachableness and poverty of spirit. Fill me, Lord, with confidence that with you for my teacher, I will learn to pray. I know you won't put that student to shame who trusts in you. And with your grace, that student won't shame you either. In Christ's name, amen. Disciple of Jesus, let's be a praying people.